Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative from the times of the indigenous peoples to the present. The startup Digital First National Museum of American Religion is the nationally recognized center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about what religion has done to Americans and what Americans have done to religion. It invites all to explore the role of religion and the freedom that fuels it in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus, America itself. Listen to our new program, The Making of Us, Lived Religion in America, by joining Chris Stevenson, host of the podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, and hear personal stories about religion's influence on the lives of the nation's citizens. It is through hearing these stories that we can better comprehend ourselves, our communities and the nation, and see more clearly how the American project can endure. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the Sign Up tab. Reverend Senator Kim Jackson is an Episcopal priest in the Diocese of Atlanta, and as of her victory in November 2020, the first out LGBTQ person ever elected to the Georgia State Senate. Reverend Senator Jackson's father served families as a social worker for more than 30 years. Her mother, a retired nurse and professor of nursing, served as a community nurse for economically disadvantaged families living with sickle cell disease. After graduating Furman University, Kim, as we will call her, volunteered as an EMT and led her colleagues at Emory's Candler School of Theology in advocating for criminal justice reform in Georgia. Upon receiving her Master of Divinity, Kim commenced her vocation as an Episcopal priest. During 10 years of ministry, she served as a college chaplain, a nationally renowned consultant and preacher, a parish priest, and a social justice advocate. In 2018, the Georgia House of Representatives commended her for her tireless effort, I'm quoting here, tireless efforts on behalf of the disenfranchised, disenchanted, and dispossessed, close quote. State Senator Jackson, thank you for meeting with us. We are working on documenting religion's influence on individual and ordinary Americans. What you share is going to help us do just that. I'm meeting with you today over Zoom, June 9th, 2021. Uh, Kim, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about yourself before we begin officially with the questions? Sure. I just want to add that I currently serve as the vicar. Um, In addition to being a state senator, I am the vicar of the Church of the Common Ground, which is a congregation that serves people who are experiencing homelessness in downtown Atlanta. Okay. Well, thank you. That must be an emotional position and work, I'm thinking. It's good and hard work. Sure. Well, thank you for doing that. So first, um, Kim, can you describe your parents religiously or spiritually? Give us a sense of, of who they were and are, I guess. Yeah, so both of my parents are um, 
faithful, long-term, you know, 50 plus year members of a Baptist church, a black Baptist church in rural Calpins, South Carolina, a small literal one stoplight town, but a town with many churches uh, as is common in the South. And um, I would say, you know, my parents were and still are um, deeply faithful people. Um, you know, I grew up in a context where we had Bible, uh, what we call devotion. So we sang a song, read some scripture. We all had to memorize a Bible verse that we quoted. And then we got down on our knees, um, you know, in the living room and prayed together literally every night. Um, of my entire childhood. And that was led by my parents, right? So I'm deeply faithful. My dad is a deacon in his Baptist church. My mom's a long-term choir member. Um, they they would say, and, and this is true, they love the Lord. And that's the language they would use, right? They love the Lord and um, have been very committed to to serving the church in whatever roles that they can. Um, and, and I would describe them as being theologically fairly conservative, um, but also I think deeply prayerful in in how they engage with the world okay now did they each grow up in that area and what was their growing up like religiously was it very similar to how they raised you do you know so my mom um did grow up she's the church i mean so she's actually a lifelong member of this church wow. the church that she now attends is the same church that she grew up in her father was a deacon um my grandmother and grandfather both attended there, um, you know, since kind of the beginning, if you will. And um, yeah, she grew up in a very similar context. Like I know, um, I, I suspect that they were doing this, but anytime if I had to spend the night at my grandparents' house, uh, we did devotion there too. So I think that's yeah. probably where it came from. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that the context in which my mom was raised was quite similar. My dad, on the other hand, he was raised in West Virginia. And, um, you know, I don't think they went to church all that much necessarily. Um, I think, you know, church, my grandfather would say, uh, you know, you always have to send down your timber, which was his kind of metaphor for making sure you pay your tithes, but um, okay. he could send his timber down. Uh, he didn't necessarily go uh, himself. So I think my dad's kind of religious upbringing was, was a, a whole lot less consistent in terms of church attendance. And, um, but, but also I think they had their own kind of sense of spirituality within the family, um, even without that formal tradition. Okay. And then how did they meet? And then how did they sort of merge their spiritual lives coming together? So my parents met in college. They both attended Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, which is a, a school um, specifically dedicated to providing an education to Appalachian children, children who grow up in Appalachia, who grow up poor in Appalachia. There's actually a, a cap on how much money your parents can make in order for you to go there. And so um, both of my parents met there and fell in love there and got married uh, soon after graduation. Uh, and I actually don't know, um, I don't know how they reconciled the two things. That's that's a conversation perhaps I should visit with them. Um, I know originally they moved to West Virginia. They moved at first to my dad's hometown and um, immediately found a church. They joined an AME church. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's probably one of the only black churches in that town of Elkins, West Virginia. Um, and they were faithful, you know, there. 
but I don't know. I don't know how they sorted all that out, but it became right. clear that my dad certainly, once they moved back to South Carolina, was very clear about what church he was going to go to. It was the home church that his wife, you know, had been a member of and, and, right. and they've kind of worked together. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. That's, that's super interesting. It's always very fascinating to hear about people's sort of spiritual heritage through their parents and grandparents. It sheds a lot of light, I think, on, you know, what religion does to people. Right. Well, and let me. Uh, can I say just a few? Absolutely. Words my, grand, my grandparents. So, um, so I, I did. I grew up about um, maybe less than a half a mile from my grandparents' home, and uh, so my grandfather he um, had Alzheimer's for basically my entire childhood. I, I don't remember a time in which he actually remembered my name, hmm. um, but my way of connecting with him was that I played the piano. That was a thing that every girl child had to do. Um, and so I learned how to play the piano and he would come to our house every, every afternoon and I would play hymns, you know, just old gospel hymns that I could kind of pick out on the piano and he would sing and he would sing those words and never miss a beat. Now he didn't know, wow. he didn't in fact know my mom's name. Like he just knew it was a safe place to go. Um, but he didn't necessarily know whose house he was in or, or who these folks were, but he knew every word of all of the hymns that I played. And uh, that has forever stuck with me about the the way that faith can perme permeate and penetrate one's brain and one's spirit um, and how it kind of exists in a different part of the brain that for him, even Alzheimer's could not touch it. Um, I remember within the week of his death, the week before he died, he sang a song in church, um, all the words, um, and then a week later died from Alzheimer's. And so um, it's, you know, that's just probably one of the most formative people in my life in terms of faith and trying to think through what it means to be a faithful person and what it means to, to have that kind of deep commitment that really sinks into your heart and your soul. Very poignant. Thank you for sharing that personal story about your grandfather. Uh, now I'd like to ask you some questions about stages of life. Give us a sense of you growing up and the spiritual influences there. Yeah, sure. So I, I grew up in a family where we went to church every time the doors were open. In fact, my parents sometimes opened the doors of the church, um, particularly for like Saturday enrichment events with kids. Uh, but I think some my early, I have a couple of really early memories of church. Um, one, I remember really clearly being probably five years old and being in the children's choir. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is a traditional black church where they send, they, they make the invitation for you to come and accept Christ every Sunday, right? You know, come on down and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I remember sitting there in the chair of the little choir and, and, and feeling like God was calling me to, to make that walk and, and feeling this other tug of like, no, I, I don't want to do it or I can't do it. And, I, you know, as an adult reflecting back, I, I think some of it was just pure like shyness, like a five-year-old right. walking down in front of an entire church. But what I told my parents that afternoon was, you know, I felt like God and Satan were tugging um, back mm. and forth and I couldn't get up to go down and I don't want to go down, but I do want to get baptized. Uh, and so my parents reported that to my pastor that I wanted to be baptized. And I was one of the youngest people um, to be baptized in that church because the, the rules technically were that um, a child had to reach the age of reason, mm -hmm. which was 12 years old before okay. they could be baptized. 
But I expressed with great clear articulation that I felt God was calling me, that I wanted to ask Jesus into my heart. And, and so at five years old, I was baptized. I was too short. So this is like a full baptism, full submersion, right? So I was too short to stand in the baptismal pool. Um, the pastor had to put me on his hip like a little baby, you know? <laughs> hold me up on his hip uh, and, and dip me in the water. And so that's one of my, my early experiences and memories. And and then, you know, related to that, um, I remember around a similar age wanting to take communion and being told that I wasn't old enough to take communion. I didn't understand, you know, it's too young to understand it. So I couldn't take communion. And my mom uh, said, that's fine. And she packed a little communion kit in a Ziploc bag and brought that with her to church on, we only had communion on first Sundays. And so she would come out of the choir stand and sit with me. And so she would go up and she would get the regular, you know, the regular communion, the juice and the the bread or the wine and the bread. And then she came back and sat in the pews and pulled out of her little purse, this baggie that had a little juice box (laughs) and, and crackers. And she said, and this is your communion. And, in the moment, it didn't feel rebellious, right? Like in the moment, it didn't feel like it was a subversive act. Um, but certainly as an adult, um, as I thought back on it and, and, and thought about like, what are these rules that we have around church and what kids can do and can't do or what what a woman can do or a girl can do, right? Like, what are these rules? And, and my mom showed me uh, that we don't have to follow those rules. And, and mm. I just remember uh, being so grateful to be able to share with her uh, in that, in that communion. Was there any, did she get any pushback? I mean, that she did that? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, like I I got to start taking real communion actually um, eventually, you know, and I did not age into it either. Right. Like I think my uh, acceptance and welcome to the table was advanced much more quickly because she was giving me this kind of, you know, renegade side communion on the side. Right. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. So both both of those are very um, church building centric, right? Yeah. Uh, other things that happened at church or at church outings and uh, at home, but but besides the devotion, maybe you can go into more detail about the devotion. But what what else? What are other some some other influences via stories or memories or just sort of how things were? So I I remember being in school. And I mean, I, I went to kind of a, you know, country rural public school where, you know, where we said blessing before we had lunch. And that was, you know, it was a public school, but of course we still said blessing. Like we sang, you know, Father Abraham and many sons and all those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I remember being in the first grade and uh, trying to explain to a, a child in my class that he needed to accept Jesus into his heart and he needed to be saved. And, um, you know, we're kids. And so I think the word saved, S-A-V-E-D, um, he could only hear it as safe, S-A-F-E. Mm-hmm. And so he just kept saying to me, Kim, I am safe. I am safe. I don't need to be safe. I'm safe. <laughs> you know, and I just remember this miss and, and me feeling so like righteous about making sure it's, it's this very fascinating thing to think back on but like making sure that I did my duty of trying to introduce him to Jesus right that was my duty yeah. um, and I was just a little kid on the playground doing that and um, you know so I, so that's one of the memories that I have from from school and of course I, I heard those 
those messages as you know from church and at home that right we need to invite people to accept jesus as their savior right um, uh, oh, go ahead go ahead well i was, I was gonna say i i don't know um I don't know the circumstances. I don't remember the circumstances around how I came to this place, but um, I have my childhood Bible. My parents gave me, it's a pink covered childhood Bible. And um, when I was a kid, I wrote and highlighted things throughout that entire Bible and would write little notes. And you see that you can see it in my little handwriting as like a third grader, um, things like preach on this. Um, <laughs> learn more about this underlined like look up this word um but i I think the the thing that really stands out to me is you know even at eight in third grade at eight years old i was really clear about i need to preach about this particular text and and even have like a color code of like this blue highlighter means preach on this text um so when you said to yourself preach in your tradition, did that mean per- that you were probably going to go into the, well, I don't know how, into the ministry or become part of, you know, clergy? Is that what that meant to you then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like, I, I was clear and convinced. So, you know, the way that story ends is, is a little more complicated, but I was clear that I was called to preach and yeah. I practiced. So, this is a great, great story. Um, so, we have a, a uh, like a fireplace place in my childhood home. Right. And, and so I have lots of little cousins. We have many, many cousins. And so we would play church, which is actually a pretty common thing. I think in, in black families is that kids play church, but we would play church and uh, the, the fireplace was our imaginal, like imagination, using our imagination. It was our baptismal font. Right. And so I was always a preacher and I would like fake baptize, you know, my cousins in the fireplace uh, as, you know, the symbol of these baptisms. And, um, and I would preach to them. Right. So the text that I had highlighted, you know, I would practice my little sermons and um, I would practice hooping and we were loud and, Sometimes we would practice shouting and get in trouble for, uh, you know, for playing. You shouldn't, my grandmother would say, you know, child, you can't play with the Holy Ghost. Um, But we would practice shouting. I I don't, I hope you know what that means, Chris. Um, Well, uh, you said hooping and shouting. I mean, I I don't know exactly. And our listeners probably don't. Tell us a little bit about that. So, so in the black church tradition of preaching, then certain black church traditions, there's this um, process that a, a preacher goes through where they kind of, um, it's almost like, it's, it's like music. Um, it, it's almost like singing, but it's a particular kind of singing. We call it a hoop, but the, there's some rise and fall in your voice that, um, it, and it gives this pause and space where people will give you your amens. And, and so sometimes your breath will catch, you know, and you take a big breath, like, (gasps) right. Like this is kind of a part of the, got it. Okay. Part of the tradition. So I would practice hooping. Um, and that's actually, so when a pastor starts the hoop, when the preacher starts the hoop, that's usually when the music also gets kind of revved up. And that's when people start to shout And, and shouting is, is really dancing. Um, okay. And, and so, but it's a really, a, it's a very physical dance. It's very active and mood. And, and so, you know, sometimes we would knock stuff down in the living room and, and it's very loud. <laughs> it's, just, it's a very loud process. Very, okay. very physical. 
Um, and, and we, I mean, these were things we'd seen adults do at church, right? So we just practiced that. Sometimes we would practice like passing out because um, after you, after you, <laughs> you dance and, and shout for a while, that's what happens. You pass out. Right. Um, and so all of that, you know, I was playing, um, but also in that play was very clear that no, like I want to be a pastor. I feel called. I, I would even have said that at eight. You, okay. Called to be a pastor. Wow. Um, Okay. Unfortunately, or, you know, when I went and told my, my pastor that, that I wanted to become a pastor, he, he told me, you know, well, girls can't be preachers. And uh, I responded to him, of course not. When I become a woman, I want to be a preacher. And he said, no, women can't do that either. Um, Women can't do that either. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, What age was that? How was around that age, you know, eight or nine wow, okay. same kind of stage and phase in my life okay. where, I was, where I was playing about it. Yeah. Well, let's move into maybe, uh, you know, teens, th- those teenage years, uh, middle school, high school. Um, and any uh, unique sort of spiritual influences at this age that, that you can share um, that are important? Yeah. You know, I, um, I was a member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was an, an athlete, a, a three-sport athlete, a year-round athlete in, in high school. And um, I remember, so 9-11 happened in my senior year of high school. And the next morning, so I think a lot of schools maybe were canceled the next day, but for us, we came back. The next morning, the FCA was responsible for um, leading the prayers at the poll. So uh, there actually is a thing like prayers at the poll. I've heard of them. Yep. We had like a special prayer at the poll on, on 9-12, right? So 9-11 happened. And because I was the president of the FCA, it was my responsibility to pray. 9-11 just happened. Our nation is in great grief. Um, one of my teammates, her father worked at the Pentagon. Um, and, and so we had this like real close connection to the fact that he worked there and, and, you know, he lived, but he had lost all these friends who had died at the Pentagon. Right. And, and so I just remember standing at a podium outside of my high school with our entire high school standing around this flagpole. And of course it was optional, but everybody was there. And I actually don't know what I said. I don't know what I prayed. I don't remember. I I didn't remember it five minutes after doing it, but I had a teacher who came up to me afterwards and she said, can I have a copy of your prayer? And I looked at her and was like, what are you talking about? I don't have a, I didn't write that down. Like who writes down prayers? It was an absolute, now it's like as an Episcopal priest who reads liturgy, you know, <laughs> but at that age, it was absolutely absurd. I had never heard of anybody writing down a prayer until that moment when she asked me mm. for a copy of it. Um, Interesting. But what, what she said to me when I said, oh, no, I don't have a copy of it. Like I didn't write it down. Um, but she looked me in the eyes and she said, you have a real gift, and God's using you. You have a real gift. God mm. is using you. And um, and I think that's really, I, I've, I've carried that voice. I don't even know who that teacher is. Like she, I, I wasn't in her class. I don't know her name, like none of that, but I still see her face and have that that voice in my head of, of saying, you know, you have a real gift 
and God okay. is using you. And, and, and I hope that's been true for my entire life. Okay. Wow. Uh, teenage years can be rebellious. Uh, you, it sounds like you were very religious from a very young age. Uh, any rebelliousness towards religion? You do not, you know, during that time? Yeah. You know, I, I, I tell people, you know, I'm an elected official and it seems like I've been planning that my entire life because I don't really have skeletons um, in my closet, but it wasn't because I was planning to be elected official. It's because I was a Christian who was really afraid of God's wrath. Um, so, okay. and that was true. I mean, that was really? true even as a teenager that I was genuinely afraid, uh, probably in this order, I was genuinely afraid of my parents' wrath. And then secondarily, I was afraid of God's wrath. Um, and so, no, I, I didn't have rebellion. I, I, I did get to a place where um, I started having some questions about how it all worked together. So I, I remember my in the ninth grade, my grandfather died, um, who, you know, this man that I'd been playing the piano for for years and years, this man that I love so deeply, um, he died. And then I think within the next nine months, my next door neighbor who was blind um, and had been pretty much like a grandfather figure to me too, um, his house caught on fire and he died in that fire. Wow. Uh, and so I had these two really significant men in my life who died and, um, and, and I, I just remember not understanding and like not, I, I wasn't, I wasn't angry with God. I was confused by God and, and couldn't quite like, couldn't quite wrap my, my mind around why would God, particularly, I mean, my grandfather, he was old and he had Alzheimer's and like, I could kind of understand his death, but for my next door neighbor, for Mr. Rubin to die in such a tragic and horrible way, um, especially it, it just made me ask a lot of questions about who is this God and what does it mean that God is in control? Um, and, you know, was God in control of that fire? And, and you know, like I, I remember having those questions and not really having a place to put them, right? Not really having a, a person or people to talk to about it because I was living in a context where we said God is in control, right? Where mm -hmm. we said God's will is done. Um, but I certainly, I certainly do remember it and, and journaled about it and had those kind of questions around um, how is this possible? Um, and, and, and I think similarly, I, I was having questions around sex and sexuality around that same time and, and trying to understand and reconcile, like, um, you know, I was a part of the true love weights movement. I don't, Hopefully you've heard some other people talk about no, this. No, no, no. I have not. What is that? So the True Love Waits is this. this oh, I think I have. Yeah, yeah. True yeah, Love Waits. Okay. Love you know, yeah. it's this purity yep, thing yep. where you make a pledge that right. you don't have sex uh, until you're married. And um, of course I made that pledge because I was afraid of God's wrath, right? Um, but I also was a developing adolescent sure. who had desire and... Um, and I just remember trying to figure out, like, how is it that I feel this way and want these things, but that it's bad? And mm -hmm. how do I reconcile that with, like, God created me and not really quite understanding how all those pieces fit together? Right. Yeah, no, uh, well said. I, you know, all, all teenagers feel that, and depending on the tools they've been given, they have to deal with it, right? Yeah. All right, so let's let's go into college uh um years and and super interested in, in how you be 
became a preacher, right? That that process. So give us a little bit of insight on the influences that brought you to sort of where you are as a Episcopal priest. Yeah. So my freshman year, um, I had an eight o'clock religion 101 class. It was required. Why else would I take an eight o'clock class on religion? Uh, and during one of those classes, uh, I remember his name, Professor Strange, um, did an entire lecture one day, you know, a whole hour on women in the church. And specifically, not talking about like the modern church, talking about the women of Jesus's day who had supported Jesus and who helped, um, in his words, start the early church. And at the conclusion of that lecture, I went up to him and, and, and what his conclusion of his lecture was, women can be pastors, right? Like women right. have, been, have been pastors since the very beginning. They've been serving in the church since the very beginning. And I went up to him at age 18 at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning now, I was fully awake. And I said to him with great boldness, you were wrong. That is not wow. possible. Women cannot be pastors. Because remember, I had been told by my pastor that I couldn't do it. And I believed him because you believe when you're a kid, you believe the man of God who stands up in the pulpit and, and tells you how to live your life, right? Um, and I'm sure race was a part of it, right? This is white guy who's standing up in front of me right. <laughs> trying to say that women could be pastors. And and he said to me, he's like, Kim, I'm, you know, I can show you some scripture, but I think you should go talk to the chaplain. And, and so he sent me to talk to my college chaplain. I was at Furman University. It historically was a Baptist college. Had since disaffiliated, but still had a college chaplain. And um, Dr. Jim Pitts, he kind of sat down and talked to me. And his response was, I think I can show you better than I can tell you. And so he put me in his car. And, and this really is the pivotal point in my life in terms of how I went from not believing I could be a pastor to starting to reimagine that again. Because he put me in his car and he drove me around Greenville, South Carolina, and he introduced me to women who were serving as pastors. And the first people he introduced me to were white women. And that did not count for me as a black woman. Sure. <laughs> so I asked him, I'm like, I need to see a black person. Oh, I actually got real specific at some point. I was like, I need to see people who are married and have kids too. Like I didn't just see like a woman woman in right. my mind. And, and he took, and he introduced me. He introduced me to a black woman who was serving as a Baptist pastor, which was the tradition that I was in. And, and it, it blew my mind. Um, I, I suddenly, I was seeing something I'd never seen before, not just that I'd never seen before, but that I told couldn't exist. And I was seeing these women live full and whole healthy lives and have these careers as pastors. Um, and in that same journey, he, like, so this was weeks and weeks of me going and meeting these folks with this oh, Okay. So it, was, it wasn't just one ride. It was. No, it wasn't just one ride. Like, you know, this was multiple, I, because I kept raising the standard, right? I think, I think he thought that introducing me to like the white United Methodist lady, lady would be, you know, sufficient. But because I was like, no, I need to see, you know. So it was multiple rides. Um, and, and, and then he was like, I want to introduce you actually um, to a pastor who's doing social justice work um, because that had been kind of my, my turn. Like when I figured out I couldn't be a pastor, mm. I started, I didn't have the words for social justice, but that's really what I like figured I'd grow up and I'd do social justice work. Right. Um, and so he introduced me to the downtown pastor um, of the AME Steeple Church in Greenville, South Carolina, um, who was organizing Green Villians to fight to make sure that Martin Luther King Day became a holiday. 
at the time, Greenville County was one of the last counties in the nation um, that had not made Martin Luther King Day an official holiday. And he was organizing people. And, and so I started actually shadowing him. And in fact, the chaplain gave me an assignment uh, to shadow him and to learn from him about this movement. And, and so that's how I learned about what it means to be a pastor and, a, and, and really a, a person who engages in the public square as a faith leader because I saw that um, happening and Jesse Jackson is from Greenville, South Carolina. And so Jesse Jackson came and I sat at his feet and, and really saw and learned firsthand what it is to organize and organize around faith. And as a person of faith mm. um, to affect social change. Um, and so that, you know, Jim okay. Pitts, God rest his soul really did in my freshman year of college, kind of lay the foundation for the kind of pastor and priest that I would ultimately grow up to be. Wow. That's a, you were a very persistent freshman. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I, I think that um, some part of me did not want to believe that my home pastor who had told me I couldn't do it was right. Right. And so I was in pursuit of um, actually affirming that call that I knew so clearly when I was eight or nine years old, I, I knew God was calling me to be a pastor. Uh, right. And so getting you know mm. getting engaged and learning learning more about these folks who existed in the world was just was i think really helpful for me to get back to those roots of, of clarity and then what's the what's the story of you then becoming an episcopal priest is that you know what, what was that story when I, when I finished college um i i knew that i wanted to get some formal education around seminary, you know, right. around theological training, um, in part because I was a woman and I felt like nobody was really going to validate that call without me being formally mm. educated. Like I still okay. knew that being a woman was an uphill battle. Um, and at the same time that I was beginning that journey, I also was beginning to get clear that I was probably a lesbian. Um, I had had, I'd fallen in love with my roommate when I was in college. And, um, you know, I was in a context where I could kind of tell myself that, oh, it was just her. She was really special and I'm not really queer and right. um, kind of push through. But by the time I was uh, moving to Atlanta to go to Candler School of Theology, I was getting to that point of really accepting my identity as a lesbian. And, and so with those two things in mind, being a woman and being a lesbian, I knew then for sure that I, there was no place for me in my Baptist church for ordination. Mm. Um, I knew that wasn't, wasn't possible for me. Um, was that traumatic? What's that? Was that traumatic for you? I mean, of right. Of yeah, yeah. I mean, that is your tradition and you were very steeped in it. Uh, that right. must've been yeah, I mean, it was incredibly hurtful. And, and uh, you know, actually, I still, uh, so I actually did do a first sermon, which is, uh, you know, this is how you get licensed in the Baptist church is you have to do your kind of first coming out ser sermon. And, right. um, I actually did a first sermon my senior oh. year of college. I just didn't tell anybody that I was gay. Um, and, and they had evolved. So, you know, nine years later, by the time I was a, when I, by the time I was a senior in college, my home church had evolved enough to be willing to let women be ministers. Okay. Now, they would have never let me be like the head pastor of right. the church. Okay. They were let me be a minister. And so I, I did that first sermon and, you know, have the certificate that the pastor signed calling me minister Kim Jackson. 
Mm. Um, but I knew, I mean, I was, I, I knew I was a lesbian. I knew I was a woman um, and that it would just be always an uphill battle. And, yeah. and yeah, a lot of tears were shed. And um, I remember being so nervous about telling my mom and dad that I was going to go to seminary and that I was really going to pursue this because um, I thought they would be disappointed because they, they believed the traditional right. kind of concepts that women can't be pastors. Um, but um, so when I, when I arrived in Atlanta, I automatically, I immediately started looking for a church that would accept me, that would receive me as a black queer woman. And uh, you know, this is in the, the aughts or the, yeah, early, yeah this was in the aughts. So like Oh six, Oh seven, the choices were not plentiful. Right. Right. <laughs> in terms of churches that would ordain uh, an out queer woman. I kind of just had the Episcopal church, um, the Lutherans, maybe they were a little touch and go right. uh, and Presbyterians in the North were good. And that was about it. I mean, they just weren't, you know, there yeah. weren't a lot of options. Right. Um, but I, but I will say even, even, even acknowledging there weren't a lot of options I will say that the first time I ever went to an Episcopal church, uh, you know, it's my first year at Candler School of Theology. Um, and I walk into, you know, park my car and I get out of my car and there are two women who are holding hands in the parking lot walking into church. It's the first time I'd ever seen hmm. clear, like obvious lesbians um, going to church in my life. Right. Hmm. And uh, I remember like asking them, like, can I, can I, can I go in with you? Like I was nervous and, and also like super excited and wanted to like look more closely to make sure they were holding hands because they were lovers and not like for some other reason. Right. Um, but, you know, that first service was an all white congregation. They had music mm. that was completely foreign to anything that I knew. There was this huge organ thing. It was all weird and out of context, except for communion when they went and they began the process of what we would call Eucharist of celebrating the Eucharist. Right. But what I knew to be communion at that time, there was something in my soul that connected and knew that that was, that it was right. Like there was something about the ritual of it, the, the way that he held his hands. I mean, th this priest was chanting, which is ironically, I don't do it all, but there was something in the chant um, that he offered up and the smells and the bells that, um, that, that felt just deeply familiar to me, despite the lack of familiarity that I had with it. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think that moment um, was the moment that let me know uh, this, this is the church for me. I, I want to be in this denomination where we celebrate communion like this, wow. because that is right for me. Um, right. And, and it feeds my soul and stirs my soul in a way that no other place had. Wow. So sort of all of a sudden that one encounter with the Episcopal church sort of did it. Yeah. I mean, I, I left uh, that Sunday and I went to class the next day and I asked the Episcopalians because they all hung out together. I was like, is there a black Episcopal church? Because I did need to see some black people. Right, and they were right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a black Episcopal church. So the next Sunday I went to that black Episcopal church and I never left. I never left. Mm. Wow. And, and how were, how, uh, you have brothers and sisters? Mm -hmm. I have a brother. And uh, is is he religious? I mean, was religion as important to him as it is to was to you? And still, is that a connection you two have? 
Yeah, um, so he's he's four years older than me. Um, I think that, I mean, he's not clergy. Uh, he may or may not go to church, um, but certainly he, I mean, he would be deeply, deeply saddened if um, if I suggested that he didn't have a relationship with God. Like, I mean, that, that would just be really off the mark. Um, right. And so he's spiritual in, in his own way. And I think that he is um, really, really, my brother more than me very much so is very concerned about whether or not God loves him and whether or not mm. God is pleased with him. Like, mm. and, and that's the theology that we kind of were raised with. You know, I, so I, I joke and say I was afraid of the wrath of God. Like my brother is still very much afraid of the wrath of God. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and, okay. You know, that kind of, I think drives, drives his life and is kind of what grounds him spiritually is, is being afraid of the wrath of God. And so wanting to get everything right and do mm. things right. Mm. Wow. Well, um, this has been super, super fascinating. I, I, I want to now, the last sort of question, and uh, we should end probably in five or ten minutes to, to respect your time. With all these spiritual influences that make you who you are today, um, how, how have they positioned you uh, as a citizen on the American religious stage? I, I will say I see myself as being a part of uh, the continuing legacy of the Dr. Martin Luther Kings, the John Lewis's, the, the Jesse Jackson's, you know, and all of them should have reverend in front of their name. I, I very much see myself in that lineage of, um, of Black pastors who are steeped and deeply rooted in Black church and Black church traditions and Black church theology, uh, who have chosen to take that faith and um, engage in the public square, and and who deeply believe that there is something inherent in the Christian faith that calls us to uh, to think about how we are neighbor to one another. And the largest governing system that we have that determines and dictates how we neighbor one, with one another is the U.S. government, right? It is government. It's, it's state government. It's county government. They are making decisions about how we are neighbor to one another through the policies. And so um, I think I, I feel like I stand in that, um, in that, okay. that lineage. And, and I got to that lineage um, in large part because of my formation, my early formation in the black church tradition. Uh, you know, I know it, it doesn't matter. I may be theologically to the left significantly of where I grew up, but all of those old hymns that I had to play on the piano that I chose to play on the piano with my grandfather, those are all in my heart. And in the hardest days, those are the things that come up out of me. The, the, the music of our, of our movements are, is music that continues to inspire me. And, and all of that came from me being in church every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time the doors were open um, and really understanding that, my survival, I think the survival of the Black community um, was and is rooted in uh, in how we engage with one another in church. Um, and that's 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 the tradition that I was raised in, and the right. lineage that I feel like I stand in. Um, right. And and I, I would be remiss if I did not also acknowledge, um, you know, my my identity as a as a queer person, my identity as a, a lesbian. Um, 
you know, sent me in in need of finding other people who were also queer right. um, and doing this work, right? Yeah. So I needed to find women uh, who were pastors. Right. And then when I became clear about my own sexual identity, I had to find other queer women who were who were doing this work. And um, the Reverend Polly Murray, who was the very first Black female Episcopal priest ever ordained in this church, um, was also queer. And, you know, I kind of met her through books, <clears throat> through books when I was in grad school and um, fell in love with, with all that she stood for and, and really see myself as, um, as trying to walk in her footsteps and walk in her path. I mean, she was a trained attorney. Uh, she was a mm -hmm. legal mind behind Brown versus Board of Education. Like she's this brilliant woman um, who also, not only did she engage with public policy, she also answered this call to be a priest in God's church. And so I, I also mm. feel very much uh, indebted to her and that I stand on her shoulders and carry on her legacy too into this current world where we are now. Thank you. That's super meaningful. Uh, let me just do one add-on follow-up there. What in your mind, as a religious person on the American stage, what in your mind are the challenges that you see yourself working on more than the others? I and mean, what are the top three? Where are you needed as you describe yourself in that tradition, in that legacy? Yeah, um, so I, I think a, a couple of places um, that I've been really intentional about is that I think particularly when it comes to politics, the religious right has uh, been the loud and predominant voice when it comes to influencing politics. And there's been a certain presentation of Christianity that they've been the, the dominant image of. Um, I mean, when I when I ran for office, and I, I ran for office in a overwhelmingly Democratic district with uh, many many progressives who live here, and I, I cannot tell you how many people questioned the authenticity of my progressivism simply because I was a clergy person. Like people were very unsure. They're like, are you sure you're for choice? Cause you're a clergy person. Like, mm -hmm. are you, are you sure uh, you're not trying to like keep gay kids from being able to like do things? Cause you're a clergy person. Right. Uh, and so I've spent a lot of time and I think this is one of the, one of the niches that I get to fill is being a clear progressive voice in politics that's unapologetically Christian. Um, and, and I also seek to reclaim the stories um, of, our, of our church um, and of our tradition, bring those into the public sphere in order to advance causes that are positive and helpful uh, to, to people who've often been marginalized, right? So then that's a part of my work. Um, I work with people who are homeless and um, that is an intentional choice to engage with um, overwhelmingly black and brown people who are on these streets. And I do that in conjunction with being a Senator because it helps me um, when, when I think about policy and when I write law for the state, um, I, I can do so with the lens towards how does that impact my parishioners, uh, these men and women, these people who, who not only do I pastor, but you know, they're family to me in many ways, they're my friends. And so um, I think being embedded in both of those two worlds helps enhance my ability to, to, to legislate well and to legislate particularly on behalf of those on the margin. So I think those are the two places I, I okay. can stop there um, where I feel kind of uniquely positioned right now. Okay. 
Well, thank you so much um, for your time. Really appreciate it. Kim, anything you want to say at the end that we haven't covered that you think would be of interest uh, to our listeners or something that you really want to share that we haven't addressed? I, I, yeah, the last thing I'll add is that I am continuously amazed by how far particularly the Christian religion has moved on the issue of LGBTQ folks in just my lifetime. I'm, I'm 36 years old. And uh, 10 years ago, I could not have imagined that my marriage would be legal, not just legal, but that my mar- marriage would actually be sanctioned in Christian churches. Right. Um, That was just not even possible to imagine 10 years ago. And so where we've come in just that short trajectory uh, is really amazing and astounds me. Right. Now, I think uh, historically speaking, you are very uh, you're you're very accurate in your analysis there. Absolutely. Uh, Your parents still uh, alive? They are still alive. Yeah. Okay, And they're still doing their devotions. They still do. Their, yes, they are still doing their devotions. I know not to call at nine o'clock because that's, um, that's what they'll be doing for the most part. Right. Well, I'm sure they're very proud of their, their daughter. Thank you for your time so much. The podcast series Religion in the American Experience is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.